My name is Chad Wiley, and with me is John Nekrasov. And if you could not tell from that introduction, we are beginning a mini-series exploring sports cultures around the world. And we are starting in Japan. How do culture and religious customs shape the way sports are conducted in Japan? What are the quality of games like? What sports are most popular? And how is this culture unique? We are going to get into all of that, but before we begin our trans-Pacific adventure, John, how are you this week? Chad, first of all, I'm absolutely thrilled to get started on this adventure because I love studying other cultures and reading about history. And I literally spent like probably maybe three hours yesterday just like reading about Japanese baseball history. And it was very entertaining. On a personal level, I'm doing pretty well. It's been a, you know, after my transition out of quarantine, been a bit of a more chill week, which means that I've been able to kind of catch my breath a little bit, play some intramural soccer, um, read some books, still do schoolwork and write things. But, you know, it's been it's been pretty solid. I'm going to get to go cover my first Liberty football game tomorrow of the season. So that's going to be quite exciting being there in the stadium in a socially distant press box and all that good stuff. My brain is, you know, like in most times in quarantine, is like feels occasionally a little bit like, I don't know, I don't know what level I'm functioning at in reality, but I think overall I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing well, John. I'm really excited for this weekend, um, just in terms of the sports we're going to see. We're recording on a Friday, and so by the time this comes out, we will most likely know who the NBA champion will be. Mm. Spoiler alert, it's going to be LeBron and the Lakers. <laughs> There's also a game five between the Yankees and the Rays tonight I'm super excited about. That's true. And this morning, Rafael Nadal advanced to his 17th or 18th French Open final. He's looking to win his 16th. Which is insane. John, I actually was going to bring this up last week on the pod, but this is just a, a take I have that I've been thinking about. Is is there any athlete in the history of sports who's been more dominant than Rafael Nadal on clay? Probably not. No example comes to mind. I mean, it seems like it seems like from what I've seen of the last dance, Michael Jordan was pretty dominant. But yeah, the ones the people I need to think of are Usain Bolt, mm-hmm. Actually, Michael Usain's a great maybe example. Michael Phelps, who yeah. just like never loses. But to do it, to go for his number sixteenth, that that's just bizarre. That's yeah. crazy. He is a beast of a man. Like, I freely admit, right? Like, I don't watch a ton of tennis, but like the times I've seen him play, even as he's getting older, like. He just, he plays like a monster. Yeah, he's phenomenal. I'm super yeah. excited for that on Sunday. So I'm going to, I think it might be in the morning. So I'll probably record that during church and watch it later. But if he wins <laughs> another one, I'm going to lose my mind. He says that. And yet we all know that he's going to have his phone out during church, watching tennis during church. <laughs> Megan, I absolutely will not be doing that. Wink, wink. Mom and dad, I absolutely will not be doing that. No, definitely not. Yeah, it reminds me of the time that I was watching the World Cup final while serving on a church staff and uh, on the communications team. And I definitely did not have up in the tech booth, have the World Cup final playing on my phone. That did not happen. That's so funny. Definitely not. That is so funny. (laughs) No, but John, it's been a really, really good week. Mm -hmm. I uh, just been working and the weather's getting a little bit cooler, which is always nice. Megan and I discovered the joys that is the North Carolina State Farmers Market. Very nice. Which was a big hit for Megan, and I'm sure we'll be going back very soon to get our produce and handmade soaps. <laughs> so he's just, guys, Chad got married, and now he's like becoming like a down-to-earth hipster. Like, I don't know what's happening anymore. 
the world is falling apart. I do try to embrace the hipster vibe as much as I possibly can. Do you, do you think it's going pretty well? Given your outfit, it's not going incredibly well. Mm, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Chad's wearing a combination of a bright yellow Brazil jersey and this bright pink hat. And I don't know if the, I don't think that qualifies as hipster. Okay, that's fine. We'll just move right on then. Yeah. <laughs> John, you put out a request for a question this week, and you got a Star Wars question that we're just going to take some brief time for you to answer correctly and then for me to answer incorrectly, and then we'll get into our main topic. Correct, yeah. Listener Clayton Grant um, sent in a question asking which uh, Star Wars legend slash expanded universe character should be featured in the new Star Wars trilogy, whatever comes out next. And I think there's only really one answer to this question, and that's definitely Admiral Thrawn. I still haven't read the books, but, like, I 100% need to. And Admiral Thrawn seems like such a cool character, and, like, I would 100% love a movie trilogy just about Admiral Thrawn. So I think that's I think that's my answer. Admiral Thrawn is a blue imperial alien, like, in the middle of a human-dominated empire. Is I think it's incredibly cool and it's an interesting story. So that's my answer. But Chad has a ridiculous answer. Well, I don't think it's as ridiculous as you do, John, because when I read this question, I took it to understand that he means by expanded universe, because he says to appear in a trilogy, he means Mm -hmm. by expanded universe, any character who has so far not appeared in one of the three Star Wars trilogies. Perhaps. Which by that definition, (laughs) my answer not only qualifies, but it is a superior answer because I would like to see future Jedi Master Baby Yoda <laughs> in the new Star Wars trilogy. But, like, will he be a baby anymore? Like, will he be a baby Jedi Master? I think that when he's 900, we will still call him Baby Yoda because that is what we will always call him. We but can't like, call him Yoda because he's not Yoda. You're, like, you're holding him down, man. Like, can you imagine being defined by yourself as a child for the rest of your life? I mean, there are rappers who go by a little baby or the baby or <laughs> other things. So it's, it's at this point, it's not really a... Uh, a holding down anymore it's just a just a term okay well we're gonna we're gonna make a note of this but next week when we do a star wars question we're going to be assigning rapper names to jedi masters (laughs) and then we're gonna go from there this is a great idea i think that could be an entire episode of podcast so So stay tuned for next week guys episode 11 future jedi master baby yoda does something great i'm excited for that John, out of the blue, you texted me and you were like, Chad, I have the greatest idea ever for a Crunching Tackles miniseries. And as soon as you explained it, I was like, yes, I'm all in on this. Because one, it gets you off of your only wanting to talk about soccer, which is always a treat. (laughs) And two, we can go to a lot of different places where unless a listener of this podcast is an accomplished world traveler, they probably don't know a lot about Japanese sumo wrestling or Mm -hmm. New Zealand rugby or Latin American baseball. And so we're going to get a chance to really go around the world over the next few weeks and identify different countries and different cultures and just take a deep dive into what their sporting culture looks like, comparing it to America, comparing it to other parts of the world. And today we're starting in Japan. Japan was a super obvious choice because, for me at least, when you mentioned it, just because it's such a unique culture that is really, really focused in tradition. It has so many religious elements to the way that they express their sports. And their national sport is the most unique of any national sport. Sumo wrestling, which is the national sport of Japan, is an inherently Japanese sport. 
And it's so unique and it's so interesting that we were super excited to dive into this conversation. So John, why don't you go ahead and introduce the topic and then we'll start making our way through this specific country's culture. This idea came to me because, you know, we talk a lot about culture and sports and all that good stuff, about American politics, about current issues, all that good stuff, right? But we, you know, we are constantly diving into different areas of largely American and some British sports culture on a regular basis, right? But it's interesting to think, in my mind, you know, all these cultural factors that we're talking about have shaped the way we view sports. And I started thinking to myself, you know, how different how differently do people in other countries view their sports culture? Like we can clearly see that even in the way that you and I view sports to a degree because I mentally have been so influenced by British sports culture to a large degree, right? So I found that very interesting. So with that, we're kind of diving into today into the whole sports culture of Japan and the way that that incredibly unique culture and its incredibly unique history has shaped the way they have adopted their sports. You know, we're going to talk about a few different themes kind of of Japanese sports history. And kind of this conversation begins with something like sumo wrestling, because it exemplifies just how unique Japan approaches its sports, right? They, there are trends in sumo wrestling that go on into baseball and into soccer that we're going to talk about later that really kind of demonstrate, you know, that if you have a specific cultural viewpoint on life and on history and on reality, ultimately it is going to spill over into your sports culture in a completely different way than we might expect as American sports viewers. So I'm really excited for this podcast and I'm also really excited to kind of look at kind of the trends that have created what we now see as like a coherent Japanese sports culture. Yeah, so let's start kind of right where I introduced with the national sport of Japan, which is sumo wrestling. Mm -hmm. This is a sport that really no other country has ever even attempted or considered replicating. It is an inherently Japanese sport. The only time I've ever seen it was during ESPN The Ocho, which I've mentioned mm -hmm. on this podcast before which is the one day a year when ESPN shows Bizarre Sports, and they showed an hour of sumo wrestling. But John, just from having watched clips of it on YouTube and seeing uh, different highlights and then looking into and reading some of the culture, this is a fascinating sport because it dates back to literally ancient times before Jap Japan even has a written history. Mm -hmm. And it's tied so closely to religious elements of the culture, as well as issues of dignity and respect. It really is more than just a sport. It's an entire event. It, it has artistic elements to it. It has cultural elements to it. It's fascinating. So why don't you kind of, for the few people who may not know what sumo is, kind of explain what category of sport it is, and then we can dive into a little bit, a little bit more specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sumo wrestling is a form of wrestling, obviously, and it's essentially my understanding, my rudimentary understanding of the rules is basically it's bouts consist of only one like round. And the goal is to basically either push your opponent out of the ring or to get them to touch the mat with any part of their body other than their feet. And so it's like sumo wrestlers, you know, there's kind of this stereotype, right, that we is, has naturally arisen of sumo wrestlers being these huge hulking guys 
right? Because the whole sport is based on that one moment of brute impact and trying to wrestle your opponent to the ground. And what's interesting about sumo wrestling, like Chad said, is it developed unlike any of the sports that we follow, you know, in ancient history as kind of like a courtly religious ritual in Japan. And, you know, fascinatingly, like it has ties to Japan's you know, old religion of Shintoism and courtly rituals. And it has all these very tightly constrained rules, like women can't enter the ring, which has caused a lot of controversy recently or be anywhere near the ring. Um, Wrestlers have to live in like group stables. Um, There's very set rules regarding who can compete against each other and how rankings are set. And all of this is governed, you know, by rules that have basically been set for hundreds of years some of the rules have been around for thousands of years, right? But even the most recent rule changes have been like, haven't happened since like 16, 1700s. And it's basically this kind of establishes the groundwork for how we're going to view Japanese sports culture, which is adapting to the changes of the world around it, just like the nation of Japan has constantly, and we're going to dive into a little bit more as we get into this conversation. But the nation of Japan has constantly been in this conflict between its own individual culture set by the islands that it's on that are very isolated from the outside world and the movements of globalization that are changing Japan's culture and making it more of a product that goes out to the world and receives culture from everywhere else. And so sumo kind of exemplifies that. And interestingly, a lot of other wrestlers, actually a lot of current successful sumo wrestlers, are actually from outside Japan right now. A lot of Eastern European athletes, surprisingly, apparently, from my research I discovered, are actually quite successful. And it's been a while in the past kind of couple decades, Japanese wrestlers have actually had a lot less success at the very top, which is fascinating. You're kind of seeing, even though it's not necessarily impacting other cultures, other cultures are kind of trying to get into the culture a little bit. Yeah, the sport that this reminds me of the most in terms of the ranking system and like who wrestles against who, structurally, it reminds me of the UFC in some ways, Mm -hmm. where there's a ranking and you, you know, you try to make your way up the rankings. There even is a connection between sumo wrestling and mixed martial arts because mixed martial arts MMA actually started with a tournament to determine who the best fighter in the world was. And it actually started as a tournament where they just brought a bunch of people from different styles Mm -hmm. and put them in a ring. And it had jiu-jitsu, karate, traditional boxers, kickboxers and a sumo wrestler who participated in that original UFC MMA Mm -hmm. style tournament as well. And then obviously UFC diverged into what it is today. But John, one of the main differences, and this is going to feed into probably the primary stereotype that someone has of a sumo wrestler is unlike UFC or boxing, there's no weight categories. Right. Which is crazy. Everyone fights in the same weight. And so the heaviest sumo wrestler of all time is a guy whose name I'm going to try to pronounce, and it's Yamamotoyama Ryuta. I don't know if I got anywhere close. (laughs) And during his professional, I guess the peak of his career, he weighed 600 pounds. Oh, my gosh. At six foot four. I didn't know it was possible to weigh that much. Yeah, he is is considered the, the heaviest sumo wrestler ever, and he's also considered to be the heaviest person in Japan, in Japanese history. Jeez. I don't know who the heaviest person in world history is. There's probably a Guinness World Record for that. Yeah. But for a functioning human being who can actually wrestle, like move, stand, mm-hmm. walk, wrestle at 600 pounds, 
That is absurd, John. <laughs> and so that definitely feeds into the stereotype of Japan. And as we kind of transition this from sports to culture, it also speaks to something else about this guy as well, because Yamamoto Yama Ryuta was forced to retire in 2011 because he and other wrestlers were found to be involved in match fixing, mm-hmm. which is something that in America we remember back in the early 1900s with the Black Sox scandal, where the Chicago White Sox threw, intentionally lost a World Series for money. Sumo wrestling has had their own issues there, and in a culture that is so based on honor, respect, and dignity, as we start to transition to what the culture of Japan looks like and how that impacts sports, I think match fixing and this scandal is a really, really good place to start because it highlights just how serious their culture takes any sort of dishonor, even in sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of a little bit of a segue, right? But I was reading through the Japan Times, which is like a one of the primary English language Japanese news publications uh, this morning. And there was the first headline was about a uh, NPB Nippon professional baseball, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The president of one of the teams was forced to resign because athletes got coronavirus, mm. like on two separate occasions. And basically like he was like, you know, his sense of honor was so strong and the sense of honor in the culture is so strong that like having failed, the, the team having failed twice was too much for him to remain in his position, which like, if you can imagine like the, you know, the owner of the Titans or something, or like the CEO of the Titans resigning because of his players, like that's inconceivable in our mm-hmm. minds, I think. Um, so that's kind of like, just kind of demonstrates, right, the mentality, which comes ultimately from sam- samurai mentality, right, that we have a lot of stereotypes about in kind of American culture from all kinds of, you know, fascinating areas, right? Because the samurai are this incredibly unique warrior class, like our, you know, chivalric system of old in the Middle Ages. Dan Carlin on his uh, podcast, Hardcore History, that I've been talking about a couple of weeks ago, you know, he talks about how the the honor mentality of Japan arises from kind of that that like immortalization of the warrior class as kind of the 1900s progress in Japan's trying to find its unique identity in the world, right? In trying to maintain kind of, you know, Japan was really the first country outside Europe to resist colonialism by essentially modernizing itself. It was isolated for hundreds of years. And then America showed up, which will be important later. America show up around like the 1880s and force Japan to open after being isolated for years. And Japan immediately starts modernizing and they basically try to draw on that samurai, you know, perspective, that warrior ethos to like really fuel their country's success. And so this really, this cultural idea that you're talking about, this cultural idea of honor that really is wound into every single area of Japanese society plays itself into sports in fascinating ways, whether in the way people view individual success in baseball to the way that you view corruption in sports. And is this going to come up again and again and again as we talk about this? Yeah. And John, as you mentioned, it was in the, I guess, the late 1800s that Japan was forced to open to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that America brought to Japan was baseball. And I think for an American sports fan, the first thing an American is going to think about when they think about Japanese sports is probably baseball because the 
heritage of Japanese-born players in Major League Baseball is an extremely it's it's not a very big list but it's an extremely impactful list to the way that we mm-hmm. talk about major league baseball going back to ichiro suzuki even before that and now today with a guy named shohei otani who signed a record contract from japan coming to america to play for the los angeles angels john baseball was like you mentioned introduced by americans in tokyo and the japanese baseball league that started to form in some opinions, the Japanese Baseball League is probably the second best baseball league in the world after Major mm-hmm. League Baseball. So when baseball first came to Japan, John, can you kind of just walk us through the timeline of really when it started to take off and become popular and then kind of how it started to interact with Major League Baseball at some point along the way? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very briefly, I guess the kind of the story of baseball in Japan is interesting because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, colonialism never fully took over Japan, right? You know, cricket spread in India and Pakistan because Britain occupied India and Pakistan, right? And baseball, even though America opened Japan, it didn't occupy it. And so baseball kind of came in organically as American missionaries and tradesmen and all that kind of stuff arrived. So as far as we know, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, baseball was first introduced in 1872 to Japan by American Horace Wilson, who was uh, working at a school in Tokyo. And this was very interesting for me because I thought before doing all this research, my understanding was that baseball was introduced by American soldiers after World War II as kind of like a way to integrate with the society. But it was very interesting to find out that that was not true. Um, So Japanese sports culture kind of starts integrating with baseball through the school systems, through high school and college. And one uh, engineering student who went over to America named Hiroshi Hiraoka came back to Japan and then started organizing a baseball team uh, called the Shimbashi Athletic Club, which was, as far as we know, the first organized like baseball team in Japan. Um, and kind of as time went on, the Japanese school system really, really got into baseball as kind of the early half of the 1900s start to progress. American baseball players kind of in the, around the 20s start to kind of get a feel for like, oh, you know, like baseball's kind of on the rise in this country. And so they start touring. And one MLB star, Lefty O'Doul, plays a huge role in all of this. He um, helps, he comes on a tour and then he helps to bring American all-star team over in 1934 including players like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, like a big deal. And the entire, like, everyone in the world knew who Babe Ruth was at the time. Like, Mm -hmm. baseball was a huge sport. And the Japanese, like, were in love with Babe Ruth at the time. Like, there's a statue of him in a zoo in Japan now. And, like, interestingly, right, as we're moving toward World War II in this time period, right, Japan is developing, like, a hardcore baseball culture. And they start, like, a league in 1936. But... In three years, in one year, Japan's going to invade China, and then in five years, Japan's going to bomb Pearl Harbor. Right, we're just going to put a stop to a lot of this baseball stuff until America kind of like re-kicks things back again. But that kind of period between the 1870s and the 1940s is a huge period in developing Japanese like baseball history. Like much like sumo wrestling. As Japanese culture began to embrace baseball, they also put their own cultural twist on the sport in ways that would be different from the way that we would see baseball played today. 
And as we kind of expand this conversation, we're going to include a little bit about Korea as well, because Japan and Korea are very similar. And like I mentioned before, there really is a debate about whether or not Japan and Korea and that part of Asia or Latin America is the second biggest area for talent in baseball around the world. Right. And so one thing that's really interesting about the way that the Japanese and the Koreans do baseball is they keep that idea of respect in every single aspect of their society. And it really comes across in interesting ways where if a younger pitcher accidentally hits an older batter, the sign of respect to that elder is to step off the mound and bow to the batter. In America, if you hit a batter, you probably get into a fight. But, you know, it's just, it's different in that culture. Similarly, they have a seniority for the way that they get their team meals or the way they enter the locker room or the way that they take showers. It's all very cultural based. It's all very, you know, there's a hierarchy of elders and younger. But on the flip side to that, they also are very expressive, even more so than Major League Baseball. Mina Kimes wrote an article for ESPN a little bit ago when really the only sport in the world was Korean baseball at the time uh, <laughs> during the COVID-19 pandemic. And she talked about how years before the bat flip ever came to Major League Baseball, which I first remember with Jose Batista and the Toronto Blue Jays in the playoffs a few years ago, but they had been doing that for years in Japan before then. And it's never been considered a sign of disrespect or showing up a pitcher or the opposing team as we do, as we view it in America. It's just a form of expression. And so in that article, she talks about how if a guy flips his bat and the pitchers don't do anything about it, it's just part of the game. It's just a way that they express their excitement and their joy. It's something that the fans get into. And it's not, but it, it could not be considered a sign of disrespect because respect is such a vital part to the way that they conduct their sport. It's interesting to see also how, you know, that, that Smithsonian article I mentioned earlier was kind of talking all about how baseball has been a huge part in kind of connecting Japan and America that, you know, historically in the last 70 years have been like locked or historically, you know, seven, about 70 years ago were locked in basically the most brutal conflict in world history, right? In baseball, you know, Douglas MacArthur, when America occupied Japan, you know, he encouraged the use of baseball as a diplomatic tool to kind of help bond the countries together. And it's interesting to see, you know, as kind of the leagues kind of mesh a little bit, how, you know, in, I think it was in 99, um, you know, the NBP, NBP, Nippon, which is the word for Japan in Japanese, um, the Nippon Professional Baseball League formed a system called posting where they could put, you know, someone up for MLB teams to bid on um, so that team players from Japan could go to America. It's interesting to see how those kind of those cultural trends of respect and honor, you know, put in an American context, play out very differently, right? That, you know, when you have these two cultures that, you know, America created baseball, but Japan has taken baseball and then made it its own, you know, and an American baseball fan watching Japanese baseball will see like, it feels very different in certain respects, which I think is fascinating. And it's probably different, you know, even than the differences in soccer culture in a lot of different countries. And just like those, those you know, differences play out in soccer, maybe to a lesser extent, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see how, how differently 
a country with different cultures can, you know, perform a sport that's kind of they've made their own. Yeah, John, you talked about when Japan got introduced to America, but I want to talk a little bit about when America really got introduced to Japanese baseball. Because, like I mentioned, there is a heritage of Japanese players in Major League Baseball, and we can kind of go through a list. But to me, it really starts with Ichiro Suzuki. He was the first player to really take off, really in both Japan and in America, you know, with over two thousand hits combined in those in the Japanese league and in the American league in the Major League Baseball, and now. What we see is major league teams putting an emphasis on scouting Japanese baseball leagues to find、mm-hmm. talent, which is where they found someone like Shohei Otani, who was considered the greatest Japanese baseball product of all time. He's a guy who, in year 2016, which was considered his breakout year. For those of you who don't know, he's a pitcher and a hitter, and in his breakout year, he hit a 3.22 batting average with 22 home runs. And then he went ten and four as a pitcher, with one with a one point eight two ERA and one hundred and seventy four strikeouts, in one hundred and forty innings. Who needs designated hitters? What can he's I say? Inc- he's ridiculous. <laughs> and so he comes to America, signs a massive deal with the Angels, and takes the Major League Baseball by storm too. And you know now with some injury issues, he's really having to pick and choose which he's going to do, whether hitting or、mm. pitching. But You know he's lived up to the hype that surrounded him as a two-way player, and so that kind of heritage—it's really—it's—it's it's made Major League Baseball better for having access to that talent. But it's also elevated the respect with which we view Japanese baseball because they're now a respected part of the baseball community. They're a place where Major League Baseball goes to look for the next generation of talent. Yeah, and it's interesting. Kind of segueing a little bit into our final kind of part of this, which is the soccer conversation, is to see you know a cultural trend that is happening in America is also happening in Japan at the same time, which is asking you know what is the sport that's going to be predominant moving forward, and seeing how those cultures with totally different sporting roots ultimately are kind of going through a similar movement in that. Soccer is on the rise in Japan pretty dramatically.、Um, according to Dr. Daniel Matro, 52% of respondents in a survey in 2005 said baseball was the most popular sport in Japan, and 23% said soccer. By 2013, 48% said baseball, and 36% said soccer. So you've got a dramatic rise at like 13% in terms of supporting soccer, and baseball is still the biggest sport by a pretty big margin in Japan. Um, but you're seeing kind of this steady rise in, you know, a, a sporting phenomenon that is definitely growing in the world and is the biggest sporting phenomenon in the world. And it's interesting to see how this established Japanese sporting culture is then dealing with something in the same way that American sporting culture is kind of also dealing with this, you know, new kid on the block in some respects. I think Japanese soccer is something that I'm not really as familiar with because. I don't really have a team. It's hard to watch in America. There's less、mm-hmm. access to it, and it doesn't, you know, pull the same type of stars that European soccer or even the MLS can do on occasion. And I guess the interesting thing to me about Japanese soccer is that I kind of view it a lot like 
Major League Soccer was a long time mm-hmm. ago, where it's very you know homegrown. And if a Japanese team is going to really go out and spend, they might buy a aging European star who they're willing to pay him a lot of money and make him a hero of their culture. But they're not going to be competitive with a lot of the soccer teams that you and I would name off the top of our heads or that we would watch regularly. But one of the right. really interesting things to me about Japanese soccer culture is that they were one of the first to give women's soccer equal standing on the national level. Mm-hmm. They won the World Women's World Cup in 2011, and a decade later in 2021, they're planning on implementing their first women's professional soccer league. And they really have led the way with America in terms of recognizing women's soccer as equal and as important, mm-hmm. while in many ways, European soccer has been well behind the curve in that regard. Right. And what's interesting about that is, you know, the J-League, the country's first professional soccer league on the men's side, started in 93, which is around roughly the same time that the MLS started here in America. And though soccer had been in Japan for since about the same time as baseball, you know, it never really took off in the same way. Similarly, it kind of, it had a few players that went overseas that really propelled the image of Japan and Japanese soccer to their fans to a totally new level. According to an article that football magazine These Football Times did, this one player, Hidetoshi Nakata, went overseas and he ended up winning Serie A with Roma in Italy. And it was in the late 90s and that was a massive step for Japanese sports culture. They hosted the World Cup with South Korea in 2002. And, you know, alongside, I wonder if kind of that that new bloom of sporting culture with soccer, like America, maybe means that there's less of an established, like, firm culture, which means they have more room to kind of bring in a women's team at the same time. You know, that's it's really risen since the 90s, and now the men's team has won four Asian Cups. It's appeared in four World Cup round of 16s. Um, the women's team, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the traumatic 2011 tsunamis in the Fukushima disaster, won the World Cup, which was like a huge cultural milestone, and I think really cemented Japanese sports culture in that kind of area. But my favorite, the funniest part, I think, of Japanese sporting culture in relation to soccer, I think, is, and this kind of highlights how Japan kind of takes things and makes it its own, is that one of the big parts in in all my research in building Japanese soccer culture was not famous players or anything like that. It was a Japanese manga cartoon called Captain Tsubasa. <laughs> and as I was researching things, I was like, wait, surely this is not as big of a deal as everyone's claiming it is. So this cartoon was created around the 1978 World Cup by cartoonist Yoichi Takahashi. And this guy, you know, decides to start creating this little... He thought about making a baseball cartoon, and he decided to do soccer. And this little kid, you know, is born, like, basically practically with a soccer ball. And he becomes, like, a soccer star. He travels overseas to Spain and to Brazil and all these different places and plays for Japan and all this stuff. And apparently, this cartoon, this manga, is then turned into an anime cartoon and then dubbed into Spanish and renamed Oliver y Benji. And this cartoon inspires not only a generation of Japanese kids, but also players like Fernando Torres, Alexis Sanchez, Andres Iniesta, Thierry Henry, Zinedine Zidane, 
and potentially even Lionel Messi. Like, this funny little, like, anime cartoon became, like, a cultural phenomenon, like, 20 years ago that, like, took the sporting world by storm. And, like, it was the first I'd ever heard of it. But, like, it actually, like, created an element of world sports culture. That's super, super fascinating. John, as we kind of wrap up our conversation on Japan, I guess my overall takeaway is that Japan is a country that has a natural heritage with sports, Mm -hmm. but instead of letting a sport conform them, they've conformed sports to their culture. You know, Mm -hmm. they've taken the influence of the Western world in baseball, the Western world in, in terms of soccer, but they've kept it true to their heritage and their culture, which is built on family, respect, dignity, all those things we've talked about. And those things shine through every single one of Japan's sports that we've talked about. That's kind of Mm -hmm. my theme and that's kind of my takeaway. I don't know if you have a singular takeaway as well. Yeah, I think think my big takeaway is kind of the unique example of what happens when a country that's unique in the world, it's not just that it's, you know, different from America, like... Japan is very different from Korea and from China and from all of its neighbors as well as European countries. And to see what happens when you have a collision of cultures, I think to me is absolutely fascinating. And we'll see that with other countries in very different ways. But I think Japan is a really cool way to start because like you said, they've preserved their culture so well that it combines with modern culture in ways that we don't see in almost any other country on earth. Yeah. As we wrap this up, John, I want to give honorable mention to two people that we didn't talk about in terms of individual sports in Japan. Hideki Matsuyama is a five-time PGA Tour winner in golf. He's (laughs) an incredible golfer. And then most recently, 22-year-old Naomi Osaka, who, (laughs) while having spent most of her life living in America, she is Japanese-American. And internationally, she competes for Japan as a three-time now three-time singles champion and just an incredible tennis player. And despite living in Los Angeles and speaking fluent English and being really entrenched in American culture, she also has stayed true to her heritage and committed her professional career in the Olympics. And, you know, whenever you see her with her flag, it's the Japanese flag. Mm -hmm. So she has stayed true to her culture in that regard as well. And I just wanted to give a brief mention to those two people who have really entrench themselves in what we view as predominantly American or worldwide sports and have equal footing in terms of their impact on those. For sure. Yeah. John, I think we're going to leave our first part of the conversation there. Thank you all so much for coming along with us on our first global tour. Next week, we're going to do a different country. We haven't decided which one yet, but I'm sure it'll be just as fascinating and in a different part of the world. Some of the ones on my list are Brazil, New Zealand, Australia, Mm -hmm. And I want to do parts of Africa, like Egypt as well. John, do you have any that you're super excited about coming up in the future? I think Canada will be an interesting one that we mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we don't necessarily think about it very much over here in America, but I think Canada has an f- interesting and intriguing different sports culture. Hopefully we'll touch on Russia at some point. And then uh, South Africa is one that I'm actually really excited for. I think mm-hmm. we really should cover South Africa at some point. We absolutely will. Well, John, we're going to leave the first part of the conversation there. And when we come back, John and I each have a VAR corner we're going to hand out. So you don't want to miss that.
And we are back with Bar Corner, where John and I each have a clear and obvious observation to hand out this week. For those of you who are new to the podcast and don't know what VAR Corner is, VAR is the video assistant referee for soccer, and they adjudicate clear and obvious errors, which is also what John and I do in this segment. We point out and excoriate people for their clear and obvious errors. John, do you mind if I go first? Go ahead. John, last night, the Houston Astros, who I've been mentioning with great ire recently, They clinched their spot in the American League Championship Series with a win over the Oakland Athletics. But my VAR corner, and John, I really don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it goes to Zach Granke, the Astros pitcher. Because all season long, I don't know if you've seen this, but Zach Granke has been telling opposing batters what what pitch he was going to (laughs) throw. You know, sometimes he would flash the sign. To the Mm -hmm. pitcher, sometimes one time he was caught on video saying out loud what pitch he was going to throw. No one knows why he's doing it. He won't talk about it. Some people are speculating that it's to prove that the Astros can still beat people even when they don't know what pitch is coming. And in fact, when the other team does know what pitch is coming. Some people think it's just him trying to be confusing. But John, last night... His plan kind of backfired because he flashed the number two sign to Oakland Athletics pitcher Ramon Laureano. Now, for many people, at least for most major league organizations, number two is the sign for a curveball. If number one is a fastball, then number two is a curveball. And so after Mm -hmm. flashing, you know, giving the number two sign to Ramon Laureano, he proceeded to throw a curveball. And Ramon Laureano proceeded to take him to the second deck of the outfield with a three-run home run. So obviously his plan backfired even though his team won. And, you know, by knowing what pitch was coming, Ramon Laureano showed Zach Granke what was coming. But I just don't understand what he's doing. Like, they could have lost the game over that. They didn't, which they're lucky for, but I just mm. I don't know if he's just being arrogant. I don't I don't know what he's doing. It doesn't make sense to me. It's confusing. I'm sure his manager's not happy about it. Has he thrown the pitch that he indicated every time? Yes. See, that's fascinating. I wonder if he's... I think he's probably just trying to prove a point. You think he's just trying to prove that they can win with reverse cheating when they're yeah. giving the other team an advantage? I think so. Of giving them, the, yeah. Honestly, I, I I hate it. I hate the Astros, but I can like kind of get behind that just a little bit. That's kind of why I don't really know if it's a bad bar. <laughs> it's, kind of like, it's kind of like a really cool, cool, arrogant thing to do, to be like... You know, we got caught cheating, so here, I'm going to beat you when you have an advantage. Mm, I don't nevertheless, know. Nevertheless, I still hate the Astros. Yeah, of so, course. Well, yeah. We hate the Astros forever. Yeah, forever. But, yeah, so my far corner goes to Zach Granke. You are an interesting man. <laughs> I don't know what to think about you. <laughs> the far corner decided not to make a ruling on this one. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Okay. John, all right, and, you go ahead with yours because you also are giving your far corner to someone who I do not like at all. Mine is going to... Ex-Pats legend, Tom Brady. Now, Tom Buccaneers. Somewhat... Tampa Bay. Stra- Tampa Bay. Somewhat strange, not legend, definitely. Tom Brady is now 0-2 against Nick Foles, which I just find hilarious. And I think it's something to do with the fact that Nick Foles is a Liberty Online student. At least that's what Stop social media it. tells us. <laughs> Stop it. Do but- not. <laughs> Regardless... Tom Brady, right, last night, let me set the stage for you guys. It's The Pats are down, I think it was one point against they're the Chicago Bears. They're down one Bears. point. Yeah, they're down 19-20. Mm-hmm. It's fourth and six. 
Fourth and six. The 35 seconds left from the, mm-hmm. what, 40-yard line? Yeah, 40-ish yard line, right? I think it was a little bit back because they were trying to get into field goal range. And so it's midfield. fourth and six. Midfield. Yeah, it's midfield. It's fourth and six-ish. And Tom Brady right, takes the snap, looks upfield, and then throws like a 15, 20-yard pass to try to get into field goal range. Into triple coverage. Into triple coverage, right? It's batted away, incomplete pass. You know, the Chicago Bears player, you know, runs off storming. Like, you know, I, I turned the downs over. I'm so cool. And Tom Brady looks to the sideline and holds four fingers up and seems to mouth fourth down. And what has come to be realized by most people is that, as far as we know, Tom Brady forgot that it was fourth down and thought yeah. that he was on third down. He thought he was third on third down. Mm-hmm. And literally, on that fourth down play, he, he, he could have passed for that six-yard gain and had another chance to take the ball upfield. Instead, he clowned around, and then he evaded the question in the press conference, clearly indicating that he really did forget what down it was. And, you know, I have no sympathy for the man. Like, he's won so much. I don't. He should have retired. It was honestly a really triggering experience for me because I'm not too old to remember a couple years ago when J.R. Smith forgot the score in, <laughs> in game one of the NBA Finals. That's when, what we were talking about, yeah. When the Cavaliers obviously had no chance to win anyway, but it's just those <laughs> those mental errors will get you, John. What, what this ultimately says to me is there's always a question, is it the coach or is it the quarterback? And I promise you that if Bill Belichick was on the sideline with Tom Brady, oh my he gosh. would not have forgotten what down it was. Bill Belichick would have beaten him with his headset. Bill Belichick is a man of details. He is a man of order. He is a man of system. And I'm not saying Bruce Arians isn't a good coach, but I'm saying Bill Belichick does not forget what down it was. And if you play for Bill Belichick, (laughs) you don't forget either. Or you never play again, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, John, that was a really weird situation. Very strange. I I don't like Tom Brady. I think I mean he's the greatest quarterback of all time. He just annoys me because he's so perfect. It just bothers well, me. Not anymore. I, really? You're knocking him down for this? You're No, he's he still the greatest down? quarterback. He's just he's just not perfect anymore. Oh, clearly. Clearly yeah. not. <laughs> he's a geriatric old man. He needs to retire. Hot takes from John Nekrasov for, you know, are they still, are they first in their division still? Are they? Are they two and two? I think they're two and two. I'm going to look at They lost to the Saints. Yeah, they're still first in their division. They're three and two. Look at that. Look at that. Maybe maybe all hope is not lost, John. Maybe there's still a little bit of hope for All I'm saying is Tom Brady Tampa should have Bay. gone out in the high that he had when he won the Super Bowl. Like, there's no reason to keep going. There is when you're selling the lie that your body is invincible and you have $70 recovery pajamas and do men's health magazines and have the tv12 diet and you're trying to convince people that you can play until you're 45 it's a hoax people it is a hoax don't believe it tom brady's a hoax (laughs) he's a fraud new england fraud on the weird subject of people doing impossible things with their health i don't know if i mentioned on the podcast that my favorite soccer player is latan ibrahimovic got covid and then tweeted out, COVID had the bravery to challenge me. Bad idea. <laughs> well, today he announced that he has, in fact, beaten COVID. So <laughs> COVID loses. 
COVID zero, Zlatan one. Not not to get too political, but like maybe Zlatan should just be our new president. I think Zlatan for like <laughs> world health doctor. <laughs> just head head the WHO. <laughs> COVID COVID Zlatan just looks an illness in the eye and says go away, and the illness goes away. Yeah, I think I think it would work. I think it would too. John, I think my hot takes are getting a little too weird, and we're just gonna have to let yeah. this podcast yeah, end. This is this has got to stop. We we expended so much thought on the uh, on the actually important segment of our podcast that I don't think we have anything left. So, John, before we go, I need your one word answer. Lakers win tonight. Yes. Yes, they do. One hundred percent. Thank you guys so much for checking out this episode of the podcast. Make sure to subscribe, give us a rating, give us a review, reach out to us on social media, give us a question, interact with us, tell us what country you would like us to go to next week on our journey. Absolutely. We will follow the people. We have our passports in hand. You buy us the ticket. We'll go there mm-hmm. and we'll come back with all the knowledge and all the culture and all of the great uh, moments of that country's sporting history to share with you. So make sure to come back next week when we will be continuing this great adventure around the world. And for all of you who keep voting Djibouti on our Instagram page, we're not doing that. So come up with a better one. <laughs> yes, we do. We do have the right to veto power. We will we will take your ideas into consideration up until the point where we no longer want to. And then Cor- dictator John will say no. Correct. Well, that's how a republic works. It's not just we the people. The government. You, are you calling yourself the checks and balances? No, we're both the checks and balances to the little people. That's okay. how a republic works. That's fair enough. I like that. Well, until next week, when we're back in another country with some more crunching tackles, we'll talk to you guys then. All right. Cheers, guys.